Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Tom Delahunt, who calls himself a hobo poet. He's also an award-winning academic who is clinically active as an advanced nurse practitioner working in intensive and emergency care. In 2019, he was awarded Most Innovative Teacher of the Year by the prestigious Times Higher Education Awards, and this was in recognition of his use of poetry to support nursing students dealing with trauma. Tom created the blog Poetic Nursing Heart, and he also advocates creating a safe space for neurodiversity in education. He says, poetry fuels my hopes and aspirations for inclusion and a rise in educational wonder. Tom's complex dyslexia was diagnosed as an adult and he attributes his survival at school to his autistic tendencies navigating what he describes as the mechanistic and impersonal system that is school. His gift was and is words and his new children's book, The Wandering Lamb, is about unconditional love and the search for acceptance. Hello, Tom, and welcome. Hi, thank you. That was very nice. Oh, that's good. Well, it's very nice of you to be here, and it's been really interesting to look at your work. So thank you again for making the time today. No problem at all. So it really seems to me, Tom, when I, when I was researching everything that you do, is that you are bringing humanity into the classroom. And it's not just through the principle of inclusion, but it's in your specific approaches. And it was interesting because I read you say, which I'll quote, since I can remember, I have always found spaces and people difficult to navigate. These problematic spaces were not simply structural or physical, but also philosophical, musical and poetic. And I was curious as to how these spaces manifest is as problematic and by whose definition? Mm. It's like, um, I, I like the sort of, the, the when, when, when you talk, I get a visual representation of what I feel the words are telling me. And so when you were talking, I had the visual kind of um, image of when things change around you. Now, there, is a, there are a number of films that have played on this. Um, Doctor Strange in the Marvel Connect series played on this idea of suddenly walls and things moving, sounds not necessarily resonating. Um, and when you talk to children like myself and others who find spaces and people challenging, it's usually elemental and so it's very difficult sometimes to be able to say what is it that causes that discomfort but I would I would suggest now having done a lot more research into the kind of lateralization of the mind it's that we spend too long in the finite focus and we don't spend long enough in play. Yes and would you say this is what is 
particularly constraining, um, particularly at school age um, with rigid school curriculums. Is play something that is almost, or lack of play, I should say, is it something that's almost cruel, particularly Mm. to a mind that's different? Mm. So if you want if you want to allow for uh, the creation of new thinking, you know, when we talk about and we spoke recently about sort of spaces of construction where you construct something, I'm doing that yet again with my PhD. I'm constructing a space in which to be able to uh, either sort of delve or to um, or to meditate or to be involved or to dissipate. So there's like when when we talk about play unfortunately even play has become structured you know children are allowed to go outside for a certain amount of time um but often that play is also sort of regimented whereas if you as an adult say to a child um you know take me on an adventure that's a very different type of play and what you have to do is you have to start to connect to the sort of the right hemispheric kind of um, instinctive and excited and sort of all of those things that we forget to do because we feel too confined often by maybe feeling silly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And play is surely critical in terms of exercising curiosity. It's a, it's a healthy way of learning and discovering and and what's lovely in your book the wandering lamb the story states i was always a curious lamb is that is that something that you're particularly concerned about that there is a lack of healthy curiosity being cultivated in the education system uh, yeah, I, I think so. And the interesting thing is that, um, you know, it's annoyed people often who've gone through the process of managing me academically or managing me um, in, in general is that I I stumble into spaces and then I construct what I believe is a truth within that space. So the book, in a way, is like a it's like a, a legacy of an ethos in a way, it's something that I want to try to achieve, which is since it's been released, I've had a number of people referring to an individual or someone within the school who very much um, sort of links to this idea of wandering. Um, and I think that the, the problem that we have is we is we don't do it enough. And when we do, we realise how wonderful it is. You know, if you have a good friend and you go for a walk and you don't have a restraint on time, suddenly everything becomes apparent you know if you allow yourself to look at colors I went walking with my wife the other day and the light was low and there was a sea of um cobwebs and and the cobwebs were so dense it was across an entire field and I'd never seen it before and a couple were walking the other way and I happened to say to them look at the sea of cobwebs and they were in the process of just walking past the field they wouldn't have known that it was there and it was one of those once in a you know in a lifetime opportunities potentially to see something that was truly transcendentally beautiful you know really genuinely stunning and I think that's part of our problem is that we've almost closed that eye um, society in general and I'm not happy to have that done anymore and I think as I become closer and closer to Dr Delahunt, I think eventually he's going to be quite problematic because he's going to ask for things to change. Yeah, because it's interesting that um, 
obviously uh, you won a very prestigious award um, in terms of recognising um, your, your teaching and, and your innovation in teaching. But professionally, um, that must be very challenging because, mm. because you embrace uh, being different and thinking differently. Um, you can be labelled as being left field, which... I wonder if you find that quite tedious, actually. Um, I think I think I've learned because you know the masters, um, uh, the the dyslexia was picked up during the masters, which attained a distinction. But like when I said to you, I had to construct a narrative version and an academic version in order for the individuals to understand the um, the, the the sort of philosophy, the non dualist philosophy, and some of the philosoph- philosophical positions that I was taking. Um, within the academic text, because what we find or what I found is the monastic and the um, philosophical and the educational, they're, they're all sort of siloed, but I can't see them like that. And hence the reason artifact is being constructed, because it's a way of, of me being left field and being unusual but I can do it in a room where it's just me and the, and the, and the paintings and the art and the poetry and, and I find themes that exist within that space, you see, and, and that's quite that's quite important to me. But the university have really gathered a sort of support mechanism or or people have come to um, support me as an individual. And that then is then being breathed into the university rather than necessarily the structure itself. And I think that's often how creatives will feel is that they will feel sort of existent within an ecosystem but potentially like I said in one of the blogs a mud skipper on the back of the black dog you know it, it it's it's an interesting position definitely when you talk about um visual representation of words in your mm. mind mm. um I'm just wondering if you could almost describe that and and I'm wondering whether that's part of what you call the chaos of my mind. Mm. So um, I've always done it since I was very young. um, And the only time I've seen it visually represented, and this is in no way me comparing myself to this thinker, they did a documentary on the um, evolution of Einstein's thinking. And what, what he would do is in these classes, he would have visual representations of mathematical theories. So he would physically see them manifest. And for me, um, poetry is like a principial knowledge. This is what I'm trying to sort of assert in my doctorate is that there are, there are very, very kind of, um, there are a multitude of spaces, transcendental spaces, spiritual spaces, philosophical spaces. And there's a lot more hard scientists coming around this from the awakened brain to panpsychism. And I've got all of those kind of um, references to lend upon people like Brand and others that have become popular in the public eye. It's about sort of looking at alternatives and allowing those alternatives to breathe. And I think that's that's kind of centrally important, actually. Tom, picking up um, on what you were just saying about visual representation, and, and I was interested in whether you experienced that as, as the chaos you describe in your mind. Um, is it also what creates your poetic expression as a creative and as a teacher? 
Yeah, and that's that's the most important thing because I think it's always really important. And like my you know supervisors say, kind of draw it back to the kind of the intention of the work. And for me, it's about the fact that I spent so many years within a traumatic experience, you know, working as a nurse in A&E across in New Zealand and, and here. And I've still got very close connections to, to my place of work. But it's the, the truth that's born from trauma and the truth that's born from sort of the darkness, as Nietzsche suggests, you know, you know, don't become the monster, but stare into the void because the void will stare back at you. And so I, I kind of it's as if I had a language that I wasn't allowed to access because I was not clever enough or I was too special needs or I was segregated. And then suddenly in my later life, I've played Kaplunk. I use that as one of my references and I've pulled away all of these things that people have told me that I am. And then I've re I've refashioned that with values of my own. And the most central pillar or value is one of love. And that's the book. And that's my work is unconditional love, like showing a nurse that her trauma and her identity is central is a way of breeding compassion that can be offered. And and so everything that I do in terms of poetry, in terms of art, in terms of the play that I'm really excited and very much hoping that you can attend is all part of this, this sort of tomguage or, or chaos that, that, that I navigate um, sometimes painfully, actually, sometimes it is. And, I've got a current assessment going through my GP practice for adult ADHD because it's clear that I have a number of those characteristics. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, the issues that you kind of come up against later on are sort of more, you're more more able to navigate them as an adult, but they still cause the same stigma and pain that a child would feel. Yeah. So, it seems remarkable, doesn't it, that perhaps trauma in terms of how that's expressed, how it's explored, how it's understood as part of your training as a nurse or as a health practitioner mm. is maybe not as foregrounded as it should be. No, um, it's definitely not. You know, and recently reading Gabor Mate's work on the myth of normal and, um, and another piece of work, um, um, by Oprah and a, and a seminal thinker as well called "What What's Happened to You." There, there is so much more to understand about the way that we uh, we craft organic systems and services around those people that are vulnerable. And I think that there's a lot to be done. And I hope to be at the forefront of that in terms of trauma identification and then helping and potentially. I would love to have my own independent sort of practice where nurses can come specifically to me to talk through that traumatic process and find a a creative way of manifesting something positive. Because that's the ultimate aim is to find that sort of position of love, that agape that you have internal that you can rely on. Yeah, and that would just, I mean, it just would be such a a critical service, wouldn't it? And a critical exchange. And when I think about your blog that you created, The Poetic Nursing Heart, I was interested in how much that helped you in terms of personal healing from from years of of working on the front line in trauma, Mm. also developing your own confidence as a researcher with with these existing interests in in, in what you're doing. It's been it's been like 
that's part of the kind of the passion project, I guess, the thing that lights it or the catalyst. It's like the potassium in the water. What what I did with the art. So I did a I told you about the kind of the piece of art that I did, which was a, a living embodiment of my my assessment, but reworked. So I took the dyslexia assessment and I cut it up and I repulped it into paper. And then I had that paper constructed with others so that it had an identity and a value that that I could embody. But something happened in that process of me kind of um, I call it um, uh, deconstructing and reconstructing through a through a media of love, you know, through a media of something that you value um, for others as well. And, and, it, and it's been exceptional and the poetic nursing heart if you look it's just a longitudinal it's like the red thread in the butterfly farmer you know it's the buddhist creative consciousness it's like you know you follow it and what you naturally then do is you is you go through a process of becoming um yeah so if you if you imagine the context now uh, of um nurses the NHS having to strike after such a significant, mm. unprecedented time with the COVID pandemic of mm. heightened trauma. Yeah. If you thought the government read poems that came directly from those nurses, what mm-hmm. kind of conversation do you think would exist today as they have to even now battle for fair pay? Um, I think there would still be a purveyance of ignorance, essentially, because I think that the problem with that whole process is that you you have to have two people that are receptive and meeting at the same point. You know, when we met, we met in a position of um, of, of understanding, of openness, of almost like um, rhyming. And I've got a really good friend, Congolese national called Alex and Tung, who's doing his PhD um, called, on his life stories of trauma. And he he quite beautifully came and captured everything that I was doing in the art gallery and and, and spoke to me in, in, in that way of it being a rhyme that you sing to one another. And unfortunately, I think until there's a sense that within central government that they're not going to be just set around nepotistic materialism and there's going to be a movement towards an organic voice of change then it won't matter what poems you write because some of mine are quite vitriolic they are me talking about my frustrations and nurses um should not have to strike that's 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 the kicker we should be in a position where we are recognized and valued and when i was in new zealand that happened the new zealand government looked at um, all of the professional identifiers and they realized that nurses weren't valued at the same point and they just said we're really sorry sorry and they back paid them um, a significant sum of money so that they understood that they were valued as part of a community yeah and it's also finding a lot of courage isn't it whether um you're striking whether you're speaking up Mm. Um, you know, whether you're adopting a, a vitriolic voice. I mean, I wondered whether your courage almost comes from the experience of feeling isolated and misunderstood um, in your early years at school or maybe all the way through school. Did it mm. almost instill a courage in you to be who you are anyway? 
I think that's where the hobo poet comes from. You know, <clears throat> I've been through two rounds of solution focused therapy over the years just to kind of narratively explore that with two wonderful therapists that we've ended up having a really beautiful and textured conversation around, you know, why things are the way they are. And and the reality of that is that that I often search for home. You know, I have this intent to try to find something that feels right. And the, exactly the same with the butterfly, you know, with the with the wandering lamb and with the butterfly farmer, which is coming next. And the butterfly farmer is a poem that um, I'll recite at some point for you, which is really important. Um, mm. and, and this is the thing. Paula is I, I get to the point where I realize that the principial so it's not necessarily about something that's born within it's almost about something that is fashioned in a in a larger sphere and Jung talks about this regularly in his in his book around the idea of the universal consciousness and I think that people are becoming more conscious you know you've got very important people you know you only need to read books like Lem Cisse's book on you know my name is why you read um you know, you read multitudes of books, you know, the motorcycle diaries around Che Guevara's work, you know, they're endless. They're, and, and and the way that I read is I associate, that's the nature of the dyslexic mind, is I make these associations with Brand's work and Guevara's work and um, Paolo Freire and Kierkegaard, and I constantly do it. And I get so excited with that. And I think that that's really the kind of conversation that's kind of going to move us forward is, it, essentially, Paula, art can save us. It's about the audience that is there and willing to have a conversation with us around that. Yeah. And um, would you say that's because art is the door opener? I've got this piece of art now that, that I'll I'll bring you into if you feel that you want to come and see Artifact, because Artifact is my way of blending kind of every tapestry I can do together. And I think that Art needs to be a modernist point of view. It needs to be an experiential. It needs to be all of these different points of views. And I think when you get to know those stories, suddenly what happens is that, that like you say, the door, you've got you've got a glimpse, like Brunton talks about a glimpse. And, and they, 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 they only open for a finite period of time because what then comes next is the ego. Look, oh, how clever am I? I've got a glimpse. And it closes again. So I think... We need to create spaces of safety. And I think that's what the butterfly farmer is definitively talking about. And I think it's probably going to end up being my greatest work, really, because, you know, we, we never know. But it, it, it came at a time where I realized that I needed to blow a kiss back to society because otherwise I was destructive. I was moving to a point of self-destruction, but also sort of social destruction and manipulation. And the butterfly farmer is the demise of that. This would be a good time for you to recite the poem if you're, if you're happy to, because then, yeah. then I'd like to continue talking about the butterfly farmer and also some of yeah. your um, references in, in philosophy. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so this is the this is the butterfly farmer, and it's up in the um, it, you know, if, if people want a day trip, it's up in the Verena Homes building, and we sat under the shade of it, which was a really special time, I have to say. Um, so it goes, uh, looking up through the trees, tending to the chrysalis as the jewel of possibility, each thought a new butterfly. There he is, 
sat in his meadow under the talking tree, opening a small ornate box, the hinges creaking, each chrysalis splits and the new form pushes into the new world, first to emerge as awareness, then existence, followed by consciousness and becoming wing ink left and drying as the muscle and sinew is stretched out in preparation. The farmer is simply there looking on agape love and peace, watching as each jewel emerges and catches the warming morning sun. The meadow fills with sweet heat and summer possibility, organic, pure, real and owned. The skies above the farmer fill with the soft sound of the butterfly wing. He falls back, resting against the assurance of the talking tree, knowing it's done, lungs full and heart happy. This is what he always wanted, a space of safety for the fragile, beautiful butterflies. Thank you for reading that. And yes, um, I would recommend uh, anybody that wants to go to Canterbury Christchurch College, Canterbury and Kent, uh, to to see this um, displayed on, on, on the wall. Um, it's well worth it, um, just, just for the impact, almost the impact of that poem, Interrupting People's Day. It's not something that you simply need to just stroll past. It's also a way um, of pausing. And I wondered whether, from that point of view, would you say poems are almost like an intervention in our ritualistic thinking? They they help put a halt to the habitual mind. It's almost if you were walking past this poem on the wall at the university. It's the way of literally stopping you in your tracks and mm. putting space into your mind to think differently. Yeah, and the more I read of Ian McGilchrist and others, the more I've come to the realisation, and amazing thinkers, Gabor Mate's recent book on the myth of normal, I have to say, is absolutely groundbreaking. It's astoundingly beautiful because what it does is it does what I've always known and I've sort of sensed, which is that the trauma that you experience as a child in a classroom is the same as the trauma sometimes that you experience in the home setting, then becomes the same trauma that you experience in the uh, higher education setting and then the employment and then within love. And that's what the, the, the table of consciousness is about. It's about the evolution of that love into a marital relationship and how that, that feels. So absolutely, poetry essentially is about the space between the words. And so when I read that, there's a bit where I, I like I go, I go to places. So there's like, um, you know, the jewel is real. You know, I own the jewel and the, and, and the, and the, and the creak, creaking hinges is something of, of age. You know, this is a, this is a, a big piece of poetry that talks about the, the talking tree, because the Jungian tree of consciousness is a massive thing for me. It, it helped me to suddenly see that. He was speaking of something organic. And I feel that when I go walking, um, when I see a bird, you know, when I see a dew drop, I've put tweets sometimes out there that have said, I've seen creation within the drop of dew. People think that that's just poetic license. <laughs> it certainly isn't. You know, I've had these moments of awakening that you cannot then put to sleep because they are woken for uh, generationally. They, they're woken within you. And I said to someone, it's like a single note that passes through you but rests out into the infinitum yeah and the butterfly farmer has such lovely um emphasis on the idea of emergence into awareness existence 
consciousness and becoming as mm. as you uh, you know as uh, as you say uh, in the poem mm. and i know that your philosophical interests um draw on paul brunton uh, the spiritual philosopher um listeners may not know um wrote the quest of the overself the classic work on how to achieve serenity of mind mm-hmm. and i also saw um that you've referenced liking arthur schopenhauer Mm. And I understand um, his philosophical conclusion, if you like, is actually one of pessimism and the struggle mm. of being bound to suffer and without an ultimate purpose. And when I looked at these two philosophers with your work in mind, I wondered where you sit between that idea of having serenity of mind but having pessimistic pointlessness at the same time. Paula, you're such a joy. I tell you, you're such a joy to talk to, right? Because, <laughs> because, because people don't ask those You're waiting for people to ask those questions because it's, oh. like, it's like an internal thing, you know. Like Now, mm. if I was to take you to Artifact, I could, I could show you the physical mind map of where, where they sit. Now, you know, Schopenhauer, I put him in a group of others like Kierkegaard who are hunched over the idea of pessimism and Camus who talks about, you know, the taste of coffee and the taste of mortality. You know, you have to have both. You have to have the yin, the yang, the movement. And that's why, although it's a children's book, that, that you know, the, the Wandering Lamb is is very much a philosophical book about an adult coming to know how to uncondition the love through the demise of themselves. So the, the demise of self and the formation of the new true self realized is, is centrally important. Brunton, you know, talks about the, the over, the overlord. He talks about this over self, right? But the reality of that was one that I found when walking with my child. Now, I've spoken to a number of people and children are there as a point of divinity at times. And this, this little boy, Joel, who's my heart and my soul, beautifully, emotionally intelligent, was on my back and I was carrying him in a carry case. And it was just, I was frustrated with the world. I was frustrated. I was tired. You know, I was a nurse. We were doing shifts together. Sarah and I were passing at night. Uh, it's sustaining nighttime traumas where people were passing away in A&E, continually managing that space for others. Um, and I walked with him and slowly I, I realized that he was calling out to see things. So I was passing him like daisy heads and I was passing him leaves and I could hear his joy. Like it was an unbridled joy. It was like, wow, like, you know, and it was like, and, and I was frustrated and I was thinking to myself, why am I frustrated? And then it became clear to me that he had a stronger um, affinity with the world around him than I did, you know, and he was three and he then passed the flower back to me. And in passing it back to me, I looked at it for the first time. And I'm telling you, within that flower, I saw all I needed to see. And, and, and I know that that's difficult for people to understand but the sunrise of wonder and there are multiple other books and texts that allow you to understand that I'm hoping to allow nurses to become at a point of kind of compassion to others through the demise of their own trauma. And then the understanding of where that love and compassion is bound 
Um, and, and, and I think that that's not just nurses, that's medical professionals, that's parents, that's everyone, because the response I've had from the wandering lamb has been one of absolute warmth and gratitude. You know, it, it resonates with people. And I think that that's more important than any riches because I'm not a materialist. I know I'm privileged and I know I'm in that position for a number of reasons, but I'm also um, very shadowed and I've got 20 years of sobriety um, and addiction understanding um, underneath the, the the darkness is is something of of, of light. And, and that's what Nietzsche and others say. And, you know, to, to, to be the one in the gutter looking up at the stars is OK. And I've written multiple poems. One of them is called Only the Lost are Free. And it talks about come down here and stare at the stars, just lay in the pit with me. You know, Paula, you, you're so important and art is so important. And, you know, our friendship now is so bound by that central ethos of knowing that we need to make a change. And I know that you've ignited my happiness because I'm tilting my head to the right, which is an indication that I'm very, very happy. Oh, that's such a lovely, lovely, lovely thing to hear. And um, and just to let the listeners know, I, I had the good fortune to meet you in person prior to this podcast. Um, yeah. And hence, you were able to show me uh, the lovely butterfly farmer on the wall and so on. But um, it's lovely, isn't it, that exchange like this can create happiness because this is an example, if you like, of art in action, isn't it? It's yeah. because we have that shared interest mm. um, that we're therefore having this this dialogue. And, and it is indeed the purpose of the podcast to encourage openness, curiosity, dialogue uh, and, and a form of courage, being brave enough to discover something that's new. Maybe listen to poems you've never listened to before. Yeah. And, and all of this, Tom, really mm. does take me back yet again to when you were a little boy at school, because mm. it's quite hard to imagine how you negotiated or came up with coping strategies when I imagine you felt very misunderstood that you were existing mm. in a very constrained model of what mm. teaching was and 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 is i know teachers are frustrated um today with the curriculum model that they have to drag along to be honest mm. um and this really points me to your poem the boy that stares out windows um mm. i'm not sure if, if that's something you could um talk about a bit more because it really brings home the frustration for a child who isn't matching expected learning outcomes, but also isn't being invited to learn in a way that they can flourish. Yeah, there's, yeah. So there are, I don't know if I've got that poem with me today, but essentially what, what it, what it talks about is exactly that is that, so I suddenly became aware. And again, this is something that I think, you know, like you're right that people are frustrated and you know educators across the globe are frustrated and you know paulo friere talked about it within the pedagogy of of um you know of oppression and then the pedagogy of hope and i would like to think that there's you know there's a transcendental pedagogy or there's a you know there's an element there that i became suddenly conscious of and that was husserl um you know his work looking at the idea of 
how we form knowledge. And um, as a child, I would I still spend and like, you know, I tilt my head and I've got all of these little kind of quirks. Um, and I tend to sometimes look over people or I'll look off to the side. I don't give brilliant eye contact um, um, where I'm I'm creating an association. So whatever they're saying to me, maybe I'll see part of what they're saying in the movement of some um bamboo or like it sounds very sort of um hippie if you want but but it's a transcendental phenomenology it's not something that's kind of just made up and it was a big part of my masters um you know me saying that that a language of oppression and and an intent to create a a tolerance of stress was something that was being bound by NHS organisations as mindfulness and resilience. So, you know, I'm I'm someone who looks at things differently. And as a child, I became very aware quite quickly because I didn't want to be difficult. I didn't want to be naughty. So what I learned to do is to be complicit. And what happened really was I died inside for years educationally and didn't attain brilliantly i i learned to do what i needed to do but it was never done with any sense of joy it was just a replication without mistake and that's what i say to my boys now is the system will expect that from you so offer that back to them but when you come home the education system stops you are then within a, a space of love and we can talk about the passions that you have and we'll talk about um, a Dweck's growth mindset and will work specifically to break the fixed mindset that may be making you feel sad. I've seen it in action. I did it with my child before he went into secondary school and his emotional intellect and his ability to navigate allows the movement to make sense of the work. So he's happy, but it's complex. And so I don't want anyone listening to this podcast to feel that I'm suggesting that there's a sort of a simple solution. There certainly isn't, but art definitely and poetry definitely offers us a point of conversation and I think that those conversations as the poem says the spaces need to be created in order to have that conversation of trust. Yeah absolutely and of course the wandering lamb is is a lovely poetic expression of of everything you're saying and isn't it lovely to think that you were that little boy struggling, bewildered, disheartened, who now goes into schools to read The Wandering Lamb, to to try and open these new doors. And have you had any lovely surprises even, Tom, the way children have responded or even the teachers themselves? I mm. mean, I imagine in in the simplest way, it must be quite enlightening in that it must be a relief for some children to recognise that story. Yeah, I think it needs to be. So I've got, you know, fortuitously you're asking me at the right time. I've got sort of seven, eight schools now asking me to kind of come in. And I think what, what I'm going to try and do is we're going to I don't want it just to be a materialist step. It's not about sort of selling books. The whole point of the, the ethos is that we start a conversation. So I'm trying to build it around me being invited in to do a small poetry workshop where we use words creatively and with joy. And then I tell them about how I'm different and I think differently and that can be difficult. But there's points of oppression or narrative within this children's book that I think I've had amazing responses. The reviews have been beautiful. The children respond beautifully to it when it's read to them. The younger ones replicate it with a sense of love. The older ones start to understand about individuality because that's where their minds are. Are and the and the educators and the parents just 
enjoy the sense of the the the, the story being one that results within a, a position of unconditional love. So there's something in there, but there's a very very deep kind of seated philosophical narrative in there as well around the lamb becoming stuck, the lamb um, calling for help and, you know, and the oppressional alignment as well in one of the images. So there's an opportunity, I hope, to do it not only just in schools, but actually to, to think about taking it into a larger kind of conference environment and say, look, this is a child's image. But what I'm actually saying is, and then lay on the, you know, the realities of Friere's work and the consistent need to have conversations, difficult conversations that need to be had around um, education and the way that we move that forward. And my supervisor, Jonathan Barnes, is hugely influential and he's someone I'm going to work very closely with who believes very much in that creative pedagogical idea of of forming a, a freer space of thinking and creating knowledge and a place of safety and love for children. In terms of what you were just saying, it, you know, your intention is so beautiful, isn't it? it? It's simply to be inclusive, to not exclude anybody who happens to um, think differently, respond differently. Um, you know, we talk about neurodiversity, um, but yet we seem such a long way off from fully embracing what that means and how to respond to that, whether it's in the classroom or in the or in the workplace or in life in general, we seem to be such a long way from that. In terms of education, do you think it's institutional fear that there's just such rigidity to any kind of change, even when it's positive? Yeah, I think, you know, having worked in two quite large institutions, the NHS and then within the education system, I definitely think that there's there's definitely something of that kind of fear of change, the kind of the laggard and the desire to to you know for culture to eat strategy for breakfast. The reality is you you just start very small. You know, that would be really key to me is start with a very small organic process like the poetic nursing heart, like the wandering lamb and build it just ever so slightly from those kind of positions and then share those values. I think as long as we're sharing values, we can find a way of mediating it. And I have a friend in the education system who who knows it well enough to say, actually, there's a gap within this year group at this point where they're no longer being assessed. So I think there are places that, that we can start making genuine systemic change and introduction of, you know, a reintroduction of arts and um, and thinking into a place maybe that's been a little bit devoid of that for some time. Yes, because I worry that in a context now where mental health um, has much more prominence, um, but sadly in terms of soaring statistics on people struggling with mental health, and I worry that when we look at, for example, these constraints in, in education or perhaps the lack of access into arts as a, as a way of encouraging openness and cultivating an open and happier mind, that curiosity is so constrained and it's even further narrowed by social media, by algorithms making choices for us, that I really worry that all of this is such a huge act of harm um, that it's that it's not even understood 
as harmful when it's normalized as oh it's social media oh that's the school curriculum that's you mm. know that's how we do things i think um one of my favorite scenes in the matrix is when uh, you know neo is offered the red or the blue pill and i think that the reality would probably be that that you know over the next few you know however long over over the next few years it's going to be very important that people wake up to the options of making a choice that dictates um uh, opportunities for others and i think that there are you know there there are more and more spaces now where that's going to become i think a possibility um and i just think that it's just about having that 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 sort of creative um confidence and i wasn't asked whether or not i wanted to do you know this next piece of artwork i just knew that it was important for me therapeutically i needed a space to just spread everything out so i could look at it and it has become something bigger than that something that the students now want to see so it i think it's really important that they see someone doing things just differently and i'll go into schools and i will have those conversations and I'm just I think the resilience that was bound by, you know, being marginalized as as a youth with different ways of thinking and then the maladaption that comes. You know, I think there's a big issue with uh, neurodiversity and criminality. You know, I know for a fact that, that, that the fact that I was oppressed so much and I was positioned in a way where I felt like I couldn't understand the system, that the way that you close those fears off is that you utilize substances to help cater for that and brand is very good at kind of introducing that in a way that you can understand and i think that we're going to move through that point and i think it's people like myself who've lived through that fortunately um and you know continue to live within that position as the addict each day i think it's going to be something really important moving forward that that, that there are some that are out there to say, well, actually, no, I don't want to. I don't want to be part of that structure. I'm going to choose not to. And I've got my validity. And I think that the, the more words I get and the more opportunities I get. And I think the Times Higher Education Award was useful for that. And my doctorate, when it gets recognised, will also be an opportunity, as my supervisor says, to sit at tables. But I won't be passive at that table. If I feel that there are positions again being taken, I will um, deconstruct those positions. Um, because I think that if you look enough at the light and the dark and you spend enough time in both of those spheres, it's quite a good way of having those conversations with people. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's really interesting, actually, that you referred to The Matrix, uh, the film The Matrix, as an example, because, of course, that ties in with the idea of deconstruction as well, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, those characters navigating, um, you know, what was real uh, to them uh, and the idea of these these different parallel worlds. And, of course, you talk a lot about being set free and freeing the soul the demise of the self and the true self. Mm. And I wondered whether through your teaching, um, particularly with, with nurses and how mm. they deal with trauma, are those ideas of being set free and, 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 and freeing the soul, finding the true self, are these kind of completely new considerations uh, for themselves? Mm. I think that, you know, I think that that's, you know, that's the beauty really of the of, of the doctorate is it's exploring spaces that are 
not necessarily meant to come together and you know and 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 i think that the like you say that the the heretical so you know when you look at principial works when you look at works like Meister Urquhart and you look at Urquhart Tolle's work and you look you know modern philosophers as well you know Brand is a modern speaker there are lots of others uh Cisse all of these people are are having a conversation but very rarely do you allow those to come together with like you know a childhood game of Kaplunk and Schopenhauer's work but that's what I like to do. I like to put elements together. And I've always done that as a child. I've always enjoyed, you know, there's pictures of me constantly picking up pebbles and putting them in my pocket or, or wanting to create new structures. That's just part of the inquiry based mind. And that's what I've seen in nurses when they start to express that trauma and they're given a place of safety to do that. And that safety has like a safety net around it, much like the patient that comes in to see me has like a consultation safety net where I want them to know that they are valued and they can come back and see me. Same with the student in the process of learning. A lot of them continue to talk to me, even when they're off plowing their their professionalism and their identity. They still talk back to me in a, in a language of love. So there is definitively something that exists within those spaces where they deconstruct and they form a new identity that allows them to offer something out that resonates differently. And I think that we could talk about multiple things, but the poem that that I've just recited talks specifically about the Indian idea of chit, sat, ananda. So um, existence, consciousness, and bliss. And, and, And the thing about those three paradigms is that, you must kind of understand that they are cyclical, but you you also um, and they're centrally part of one of the biggest pieces of work I've done, which was was the gallery of the true self realized. But what what's more important about that is that you when you come to a point of existence, you, you know, if you talk to some people, they genuinely don't have that sense that they have a value enough to exist. If they talk genuinely about their identity, there's that crisis internal and then can be bound consciousness. And within those two paradigms of becoming, you then have the paradigm of bliss. Um, And that can be structurally done. It can be done in a number of ways. But I tend to do it through the process of of learning. And, And I think that it needs to be moved into multiple spheres. That's the aspirational hope is that someone listens to this podcast or finds my doctorate and eventually says, we want to give this gentleman an arts foundation grant of some sort where he can take this work and take it to places that it hasn't been and then we can see that action research lived out so that it can be proved that people are asking for it because you you know you and I both know that society is crying out for something um, and I think that thing is to be loved. Yes certainly Uh, there is a a tragic lack of of love in the world um you know uh whether it's you know obvious extremities of of wars um of soaring poverty um that there is just such a lack in the world um and how people respond to that is also becoming harder and harder because deprivations are increasing all of the time. Mm-hmm. And actually, in terms of um, what you were just saying and how um, 
the use of poetry is, is so significant in terms of your your teaching with with training nurses. Mm. There was a um, a poem and a nurse had shared with you um, that was um, shared online, and she simply um, I made a note of a few lines, and she simply made the note the point of I am more than a nurse, I am me, and I am wrapped around my patient's pain and she goes on to say the acceptance of responsibility weighs heavily on my mind and those are just extracts from 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 her particular poem and and I thought it was just so powerful because in terms of everything you were saying it's very much an assertion she's trying to assert Mm. herself who she is that she Mm. is more than oneself even Mm. um and the level of responsibility that comes with care or coping with trauma or helping someone else cope with their trauma, it was such a an important expression. Yeah. Um, I think that that's that's that perfectly is represented by the idea of um of the imaginal cell. I I was um in I was very fortunate to be asked by Dr. Kate McGowan from um, the CCU Arts Hub to produce this this play that I've spoken about a little bit, um, which was which was all about the deconstruction and reconstruction of sort of ideas of value around dyslexia. But it was much much deeper than that. And I had pieces of artwork that are in the in you know in the most recent modern art exhibit called Artifact, and some of those were people that had lost children to leukemia, uh, people who had had. Um, physical altercations, sexual altercations that changed their, you know, their feeling of who they were, Um, you know, very, very strong internal messages. And it's, it was, it was at that point, I decided that I wanted to have um, this one question, which was, does the caterpillar know that one day it will become a butterfly? I had never looked at anything, you know, I, it was just something of transformation for me. I mean, obviously now we know the butterfly is a central theme in all of my work, but I then started to research and I found out that the butterfly has this particular cell called the imaginal cell. And what the the imaginal cell can do is it can carry a sort of a message of what it will become. Um, and, um, and And so when I talk to my students about their work, I say it is a process of transformation. Don't believe that you will start a degree as one individual and then you will go out as another one just with a professional identification that would be silly this is a vocation you know vocations are very important professional ideology is very important not the professional standard i'm talking about the reality of how you embody yourself being a nurse i am tom and i'm a nurse when you come to see me it's exactly the same as if you were in this podcast there isn't a differentiation because i've reached a point of what maslow calls actualization his work goes way beyond that into the transcendental realm. If you really read The Further Reaches of Human Nature, which is a truly beautiful book alongside the others that I've mentioned, I know that people will have probably 30 books to write down, but that's it's an important part. The imaginal cell is about this little caterpillar. And then I thought, I wonder if that caterpillar sits there on a leaf and just goes... Oh, or sees a butterfly and goes, oh, you know, one day that's going to be me. A bit like that bit in Labyrinth where the little caterpillar invites you in for a cup of tea. You know, it, <laughs> it's it's really important that we play with our thinking and panpsychism. There's a beautiful book. I forget the author's name around the awakening of the mind. But the beauty of 
moving from one point and then going into a liquid state is does that hurt you know does it does it happen to be carrying a sense of pain some of the biggest things that have occurred to me in my lifetime um the fear of losing a child the loss of a child between my two boys have been the foundations of mine and my wife's relationship you know both of our our we call ourselves the geeks that found each other. You know, it's very important that limiting ideology of Schopenhauer of like life is literally just a pendulum. It moves from pain to boredom, pain to boredom. You know, like we must embrace the pessimists. The blues artists had it right. Da, na, 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 na. My life, my life is awful. My wife has gone, but at least I've got the dog and my guitar. You know, I think there's something really important about how we bear the pain of being within a system that doesn't care. And until it does care and we get a a governmental process that really starts to look at trying to live within that care and that sense of understanding people in need, um, I think it's going to continue to be a a big issue, you know, And, and, and I think that that's part of my aspirational hope really with the Arts Fellowship Grant is that I can find some way of being, like I've said in the blog, I'm looking for a patron. I'm looking for someone to say, okay, we trust in what you're doing. You have to come back to us at certain points, but please go out and try to find um, things that make sense. Yeah, and I think all of this points beautifully to the play that you've you've mentioned um, during the podcast. Um, so the play um, draws on such beautiful um, Japanese philosophy, um, uh, gold kintsugi. So um, to share with the listeners, um, this is a reference to an ancient Japanese technique where if an object was broken, uh, the repairs were made with gold. So the cracks were enhanced. And what I really love about that and how it relates to everything you've been talking about and, of course, your play, is you're not hiding what is different or what is seen as broken. And broken, of course, as a word, is debatable in terms of how minds are different. But nevertheless, you're adopting that same idea where you're asserting, you're enhancing what's different. Mm. Yeah, it, interestingly, actually, the 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 reason for the master teaching the student the kintsugi was to um, help the student to understand the beauty of the flaw that was that was created within the piece of work that was intended to pass through firing without incident, and it would be a way of the student really recognizing the the, the tendencies potentially within themselves. And now I've adopted that. Um, you know, probably fairly crudely to be a representation of the realities of the flaws that exist within us. And I talk about the aggregized gold, you know, and I'm in the process of hopefully fixing a piece that's very important to me. And it's something that Jonathan Barnes and and, and Cherry, who's an exceptional, you know, artist, um, those two are such a massive inspiration to me. Um, Jonathan Barnes is a really beautiful soul. And he he's sort of spoken to me and I would consider that he is one of the shepherds that sits around the fire along with Alex and myself. I would argue that those are the, the individuals that sit within the wandering lamb. So, 
yeah, it's hugely important that we recognise each other's flaws and that they aren't then used as a point of um, barter, that, you know, that they're not used as a way of manipulating or making someone feel more vulnerable. I teach a lot about um, positions of affinity bias and, and you know, the idea of the sort of social justice model within healthcare. Um, you know, someone who's very influential to me as well as Paula Cusbitz, Dr. Paula Cusbitz, who's about to submit her doctorate, also is very involved in this construct of how uh, society is perceptive of us and how we are perceptive of society but yes the the play is going to be something because it's um it's roughly scripted and it's symbiotic with the audience so it's almost as if it's a therapeutic event in itself co-constructed with the audience and the trauma that exists within the room um, and we're going to allow it to ebb and to flow. But I've constructed two pieces of music with Dr. Sam Bailey. Uh, one of them is is Trust. Uh, Trust is a piece of music that I've written and we've con- co-constructed on a piano. And then there's a position of trauma. And that piece is done by a cellist, a beautiful cellist who will play that. And then they come together in a sonata form at the end where they conclude with love. So it, it is looking quite exciting and it looks like the arts... Um, the arts grant is there, but we are going to come out very soon. I'll be asking uh, cap in hand uh, on Kickstarter, which I'm very keen for you to help me with to get it out to the art community <laughs> where we can just get the money together to pay for like the artists and the actresses um, bus fares to the event and things. Cause that's how it is. Shoestring arts are very much. And I've been welcomed into that free range you know, I must mention is an understand. It's an understanding that I never had before that there's a community out there of people, really beautiful people, um, being improvisational and wonderful and trying to make a difference. And Sam Bailey and uh, Canterbury Free Range Festival is something definitely worth investing time in. Um, and they have they've welcomed me in. I feel almost as if the hobo poet has found his home. But obviously, the problem with me is that um, I always move on. well certainly um your episode page of this podcast we can signpost to the kickstarter link um and hopefully listeners can discover for themselves more of your own work uh whether they can come and visit um artifact the exhibition come and come and see your play uh we'll signpost all of this um on your episode page i wondered if there's anything that you might want to to leave the listeners with, or, or even a few lines of poetry, yeah, I'm trying to um, I'm trying to find because I've got I've got a lot I've got a lot of poems that yeah actually yeah I have got one actually which is called the Puppet Master. The Puppet Master is quite it's quite a challenging poem, but it's it would be a really good way of understanding how it feels to have those kind of neuroatypical tendencies. I haven't read it in quite a while and it, it is quite it is quite challenging to the to the listener but um more around maybe a position that they might um uh, have an affinity with or align with. Um, So I'll read that as a conclusion um, because it it concludes with the statements of the central themes of my PhD, which is um, uh, trust and trauma and love. Um, A ghost within my own reality. I feel the strings of the puppet master today pulling at my tired mind, contortions and frustrations and positions of pain. 
Everything I say and do is filled with a pretense of meaningless movements, vacuous spaces of darkness. Everyone and everything is part of a performance and we rest within a play cast by others. Be the poet, be the thinker, be the artist, be the dad, be the husband. None of this is a reality. We sit as entities in a reality defined by chance, moved and played with. We rest when told. I see the life's lies. They stretch out like a dew-soaked spider's web, the social truths laid out as if etched into stone. But the cracks are formed new with a fool's gold. So I move as if unseen, a ghost within my own reality. I whisper reassurance to my fractured soul. Trust, trauma, love. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you very much for reading and sharing that. And it, and as you say, that really does pull everything together that, that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Um, Tom, thank you so much for making all this time. Um, I'm, I'm so glad because um, this episode will share such distinct perspectives, particularly um, from your point of view as a, as a nurse with trauma experience, with someone that's lived with or lives with complex dyslexia. And just the humanity that you offer in return for all of that. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And um, I hope people will follow the signposts and follow the hobo poet. I hope so. It would be lovely to build up a little community of kind of little beatniks. You know, that little beat community is something that I, I've i sort of started to understand now within the arts community. And it's a very important pulse. You know, your statement of can art save us? Yes. And actually, it's the space where most of that love will emanate. And I think that I... I want to be part of that caravan of love. I want to be part of that process of making change for people. And, you know, to quote Stevie Wonder, you know, love needs love today. We need to send it in right away. Don't delay. You know, it really is really important. The most important thing is I get to meet the wandering lambs just to tell them it's okay. Yeah, that's absolutely lovely. A field, fields and fields full of happy wandering lambs who can continue to wander, but knowing they have a home and knowing they have love. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure.